Hello and welcome to P4A's Let's Talk Rare monthly podcast. Every month, we at Partners for Access bring to you some of the most important news developments in the orphan drug and cell gene therapy world and what they mean to you. Hello and welcome to the show. I am Georgie Rack, Communication Executive at P4A and the host of this very special episode focusing on Rare Disease Day 2022 and rounding up our month-long campaign where we shine a light on the unsung heroes in the rare community. So I have with me today two very special guests, Nick Mead, Director of Policy and Joint Interim Chief Executive of Genetic Alliance UK, and Janet Bloor, CEO of Duchesne Nexus Advocacy and mother to Philip, who is living with DMD, which is Duchesne Muscular Dystrophy. So let's begin with a quick round of introductions from our special guests. Nick, would you like to start? Hi, Georgie. Thanks very much for having, having me here today. Um, I'm Director of Policy and Joint Interim Chief Executive at Genetic Alliance UK, and we are the National Alliance for Everyone Living with Rare Genetic and Undiagnosed Conditions. We have more than 200 patient organisation members. Thank you. And uh, over to you, Janet. Hi, I'm Janet Bloor. I'm chair of Duchenne Nexus Advocacy. I've been in the Duchenne community since my son was diagnosed, and I've moved from different charities, previously chair of Action Duchenne, but now I'm combining my legal skills to help families and patients get the services they need. Brilliant. Thank you, Janet. Okay, so for me, this is a very personal episode. I was recently diagnosed with a genetic condition after 42 years, even with my personal family, even with the family history. Um, my father passed away at the age of 35. None of the men on my dad's side of the family really have got over the age of 40. So, you know, just on that, reading uh, on rare diseases and the average time for a diagnosis for a rare disease is seven to eight years, when in my case, 42 years. What can be done to minimise the time it takes to get a diagnosis? And Nick, is this something that policymakers can help with? Well, that's a, it's a complicated picture. Um, and certainly the experience you've had is, is an outlier to take so long um, for a diagnosis, but not, not unusual. Um, we've, we've surveyed the population and seen that there's been many people that have had more than 10 years to get to a diagnosis. I think the best place to start is with the UK Rare Diseases Framework, which was published at the beginning of 2021, which puts diagnosis as its number one priority. Um, and there's a lot of planned activity around genomics there. Um, but I think probably priority two is one of the more interesting elements that we have to get right if we're really going to improve diagnosis. So priority two is um, health professional awareness of rare conditions. And that's how you can solve the problem of people getting stuck in primary care. If you can't convince your GP, for example, that you need a, a genetic test or you need to be referred to a specialist, then you won't get the, you know, however good the response from the government on priority one around diagnosis, however many genomic test centres we, we set up and however many tests they run, if you can't get referred to them, then you're not going to get your diagnosis. So I'd pick up on education with people becoming medics, crucially important, um, primary care in all its forms, whether it's paediatrics, um, health visitors, GPs, and so on. It's probably 
some of the the bits that we'll be looking at whether is solved properly and implemented well when the, the UK Rare Diseases Framework is um, implemented and the action plans get published. Yeah, and Janet, is this a question that you hear too often? I mean, how long did it take for you to get a diagnosis for your son, Philip? Well, extremely long. The average diagnosis for Duchenne is around two. Philip was diagnosed at nine, which is exceptional, mainly because he presented quite mildly so to be honest, their first diagnosis was Becker's. They got it totally wrong. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, they re-diagnosed at 12. So to my mind, there's ways of tackling this. I might add that we had no uh, family history. I'm not a carrier. It's a spontaneous mutation. But with taking that on board, I think, I mean, you will remember from uh, Barcelona, Georgie, if, if you went to the particular talk about companies that run AI programs that feed in all the symptoms and they, you know, and out comes the mix, what your probable diagnosis might be. And I mean, do that right now. And of course, the number one bugbear is newborn screening. That's not done for Duchenne. It's not done for many diseases, to be honest, but it used to be done ironically in Wales, but they ran out of money because the thinking was, well, it's incurable. What possible benefit could that have? Well, clearly that's not true when you're now looking at exon skipping and gene therapy and all sorts of things that are in the mix. Nick, just touching on the, the newborn screening uh, process, is there anything from a policy perspective that, that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I think Jenna makes a really good point about newborn screening and that, that is picked up in the UK Rare Diseases Framework as well. And we're looking for the UK National Screening Committee to make some changes to the way they develop their recommendations to better capture the needs of people living with rare conditions. We in the UK screen for nine conditions using the heel prick test. And there's a majority of EU countries that screen for more than 20. I think also it's interesting to consider whether treatment has to be the trigger um, because as we expand we could consider whether families want to know um, that they're carriers for a condition um, just to prevent yeah. these cases where you get multiple children with the same condition in the family which is always really challenging to deal with um, and just to put that option on the table as well. Another thing that's happening around newborn screening is that the government is funding a pilot to understand the value of genome sequencing in the newborn. Um, and that, that'll be really interesting to understand how possible that is, what the possible advantages are for it. But it's important to recognise that a lot of the conditions that we really want to screen for, so spinal muscular atrophy being another one that sits alongside Duchenne muscular dystrophy and um, where there are treatments arriving, and PKU, which was the, well, the first condition we screened for, both of spinal muscular atrophy and PKU aren't that suitable to, for genomic screening. So we need to make sure that we progress on the traditional route at the same time. Yeah, I'd agree. And I'd just like to add one more point about newborn screening is it cannot happen in isolation. Possibility of delivering some devastating news to families. So there needs to be backup and counselling. And then, of course, you've got the whole ethics point of view, because some religious groups may not take the option to want to terminate in the first place so it, it is a minefield but it's something that should be addressed head on 
and taken us around and taken, you know, does this family wish to have more children? Like Nick says, do they have siblings that maybe have been missed and now they can look again at, you know, do you go back into your, you know, your family history? It, it is a big, big topic, but it's one that should not be, anyone should be frightened to tackle because it's essential, especially with the new developments you know, for SMA, for exon skipping, for gene therapy, for all sorts of diseases. And the number one thing is you catch it early, you know, preferably at new, even in vitro, you know, you catch it because we all know with the likes of SMA, if you get to like two, three, four, you probably miss that window. So it, it's absolutely essential. Absolutely. And Nick, how, how easy is, is that to, to implement from a, from a policy perspective? The change needs to come from the UK National Screening Committee, which uh, we as, as a community of people living with rare genetic conditions, including an alliance led by Park Angel MLD Trust, um, the Newborn Screening Alliance, have been pushing the UK NSC to accept uh, data from around the world. So where there are countries that are already screening for certain conditions, the UK needs to be better able to look at the data from their programmes. Um, and as I said earlier, if they could rebalance their um, risk-benefit assessment of newborn screening to take better account of the value to the community that Janet's just been talking about, mm -hmm. then you know that would make a massive difference. Um, at the moment, there is risk associated with newborn screening. We shouldn't ignore that. No. But we're talking about a, a relatively small burden of risk for a lot of people with a tremendous benefit to a small group of people. And that's the balance we have to make. Absolutely. Thanks, Nick. So let's move on. Janet, we've had a few discussions offline <laughs> and you have mentioned um, the issues around patient advocacy groups and registries. Yes. So, you know, at the moment, what are your specific issues within your organisation that you're facing? OK, this is hot off the press from a meeting last night I had with uh, George Reynolds and Sharon Wardle uh, from Komodo Health in the US about the need to coordinate registries from, for them not to be just data silos. You need to be able to extrapolate evidence from it. And also, you know, put my lawyer hat on, GDPR says it's not the hospital's data, it's not any farmer's data, it's the patient's data. So my actual goal as we speak right now is to start a new registry. I mean, you know, I, I was there at Action to Shen 20 years ago when that registry was started on a laptop, you know, it's that basic. And everybody at the time said, well, what are you doing that for? Why? It's not curable. What's the point? Well, no one's saying that now because, yeah, quite. Farmers want that data, which is highly marketable, but it's got to be extractable. You've got to be able to say, Right. Yes, there's three and a half thousand people roughly in the UK with Duchenne. Where are they? What's their deletions? Are they on steroids? Have they gone off the feet? You, all of that needs to be forefront to, to pharmaceuticals that want to do a trial, say in an antifibrotic heart drug. You know, they need to know where the patients are and they need to know internationally, because what happens? This data gets fed in anonymously to treat DMD and the World Duchenne Data Foundation. And my proposal, working with uh, Duchenne UK, basically they, uh, because of the lack of 
usability, shall we say, of the current Duchenne registry, they started their own Duchenne hub up in Newcastle University. It's basically a trial finder. And it also finds your, you know, where are your centers of excellence? You've just been re- recently diagnosed, blah, blah, blah. Now, what George Reynolds proposes, he's the guy that did the cystic fibrosis registry. Um, don't ask me to talk any technical stuff because that's beyond my remit. But <laughs> I just know what I want out of a registry. And what he's proposing is using the uh, university red cap system, which, in other words, you use all the computer firepower and that works so well for us because Newcastle is the center of excellence for Duchenne and where the uh, Duchenne the current hub is like for instance in comparison you know you're looking at PPMD's registry connect in America you're talking 20 million to start that we haven't got that kind of money but it's amazing what you can do now you really can and also uh, talking to Komodo Health they have it's multiple across the board. Like, for instance, I just pulled up a name. Within seconds, they pulled up all her published papers, everything. You know, and you think, my God, that's such a resource. And with, with today's, you know, technology and firepower, why not? Because the number one thing, if you, you don't want to ever have a clinical trial fail because they can't find the patients. I mean, that's tragic. It's tragic enough that you've got a rare disease with no cure, but to have farmers, you know, being turned away or hospitals not set up to be clinical trial centres, you know, it's a tragedy. Absolutely. So, Nick, as we've been looking at the the new rare disease framework, does it address these issues within there? And again, do you see any challenges implementing uh, those, those types of policies? Um, so data is an underpinning theme of the UK rare diseases framework, and um, it's so not one of the four priorities, but something that can really help uh, make progress on all four priorities. I've mentioned two of them already. Um, the other two are care coordination and access to therapies. Jan- Janet set out the um, the challenges around registries quite well there. We think that linking these registries with the NHS record and trying to get the best out of the information that the NHS either is collecting or should be collecting is one of the key priorities. In in England, we have the National Disease Registration Service, which runs the National Congenital Anomaly and Rare Disease Registration Service, which we think could have so much potential to really start linking the NHS record with um, registries and connecting registries with each other. Um, It's a fundamental but quite basic point that if you know how many people have a rare condition, how old they are and where they live, then you can really meaningfully change their lives. Um, And that's data we don't have at the moment. Um, So we need to just be a bit more comprehensive about what we do. Could not agree more than that. One of my many other hats is I sit on the uh, Eurodus Data Drug Task Force and um, Eurodus 30, you know, the next 10 years, that is high up in its priority of extrapolating data, merging registries and making them work because it's fundamental to everything we do. I mean, even even if you've got a really tiny, tiny disease of maybe 10 people in the whole of the world, where are those 10 people, you know, and what can you learn from it? You know, this goes way beyond the UK. 
it goes across the world because that's the only way we make fundamental inroads into curing these rare diseases. Absolutely, completely agree, Janet. So this leads nicely into discussing the highly anticipated release of the NICE Methods Review. The review took place over two years ago and looked at the health technology evaluation process. So quoting NICE here, rapid access to clinically and cost-effective health technologies is vital to patients and their families and the life science industry. NICE released the report on the 17th of Jan, 2022. Does it go far enough, Nick? Thanks for the question. I, uh, certainly, we, we welcome the publication at the end of what's been a really quite a long process that's had the benefit of a lot of contributions from, from our community. We've got an, an, a, a severity modifier and some steps forward in, in understanding and being able to talk about uncertainty. Both of those changes are positive and, and um, it's good to see them. I must confess we're, we're less than delighted with the changes to the criteria for the highly specialised technology programme. Um, we think the challenges that are coming NICE's way in terms of difficult to assess medicines um, will need the services of the highly specialised technology pathway um, and the, the indication from NICE during the process that they don't anticipate there being more treatments going down that pathway is, is disappointing and it's a shame that we haven't been able to to grasp that opportunity and just start judging uh, treatments using the best possible tools. We don't know how successful the severity modifier is going to be. I think it's a shame that feels like that there's been a message around um, cost opportunity cost neutral changes and that probably means that the outgoing uh, end of life modifier is going to be spread across all conditions which means we'll have a kind of a, a thinner benefit um, for those conditions judged sufficiently severe to receive the severity modifier. So th those are some of the reasons why we're a little bit concerned that it might not be enough. One, one of the conclusions from that is, well, hopefully we don't have to wait three or four years to find out. Hopefully we can get a good signal early on whether or not the NICE methods review changes um, are sufficient and so we want to see better transparency around where medicines are in the system um, why medicines are stuck in the system if they are stuck how long and a medicine's been in the process so that we can judge it quickly and see delays happening when when they crop up um, because nice now have a, a modular process to um, reviewing their methods um, there won't be another big three-year NICE methods review, but we can make, in theory, changes a lot quicker. So if we can see problems quickly as well, then we might be able to add more opportunities to um, the manual to, to make difference, differences and maybe kind of plug the gap. We'd certainly welcome the changes. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I'd certainly like to have a, um, a visibility for problems if they do arise um, as soon as possible. Anything from you on that, Janet, from the, from the patient advocacy side? Well, my dealings with NICE and MRHA, I put akin to a tanker turning slowly at sea. Not impressed. I feel I get better action and movement forward from Europe, although, of course, we've been kicked out of the EMA. But your orders don't take that standpoint. 
we as patients haven't got the time to deal with these big regulatory bodies. You know, they, they do not work with any sense of urgency whatsoever. I mean, I, nice, my first real head bashing was uh, trying to get Translana through for Duchenne. And we got it through with a managed access agreement and on it went. And then, you know, health technologies and MRHA. Well, again, with the Sidrus trial for idebinone, Raxone, as it was known then, I physically wheeled six Duchenne adult patients into their old headquarters in Victoria. And it was like they'd never seen patients before. I don't have much confidence in it. And I don't like the timescales they give themselves because we're at the sharp end of this. We're the patients and we will drive it forward, my yeah. opinion. Yeah, thank you, Janet. Um, so just moving on, Nick, NHS England recently announced the budget of 340 million for the Innovative Medicines Fund, uh, along with the Cancer Drugs Fund. That makes a total of around 540 million of investment that's been promised. Is this the final piece of the puzzle for improving uh, access for rare disease patients to medicine? Um, it could be. It had the, has the potential to be. The consultation um, set out kind of underwhelming level of ambition for the use of the fund, in our view, um, mirroring the way the Cancer Drugs Fund works. Not an expert on cancer treatments and their assessment feels to us that in rare conditions, um, the technology appraisal process itself is the challenge. So, so that's where the delays lie. Therefore, the, the proposal that, that we've opposed that the IMF decision, sh shall this medicine be made available using the, the Innovative Medicines Fund, the proposal that that decision goes at the end of a technology appraisal is a mistake in our view, because you're still going to have the same delays. Certainly um, great to have an extra pot of money to be able to hopefully release some of those delays. but we would have rather that we've been a bit more ambitious and linked up with other schemes like um, early access to medicine scheme, the incoming um, innovative licensing and access pathway to recognize an IMF medicine when it gets its market authorization. And, and just, you know, this one is not for HTA right now, could be in five years. Let's put it on the IMF get some UK-based data, and, um, and that will make that appraisal um, three, four, five years down the line much easier. At the moment, the proposal is that medicine comes out of market authorization, goes straight into HTA. In our estimation, there might be delays, and then you get the IMF. So the, the rate of access isn't, isn't going to meaningfully change, although the funding could improve, which is, it was definitely a positive. Okay, and then last question. So we've seen the, the success of decentralised trials throughout the pandemic, which takes away so much of the burden to the patients, caregivers and the families, having to travel miles to qualified centres, the financial burden, um, you know, all, all of the burdens that go with that. Is this a trend that you see continuing now we're coming out of that pandemic? 100%. Yeah. 100%. Now we're really getting to grips properly at last with telemedicine, with home infusions for, for drugs. I mean, we're a small country and we moan about 
you know, trekking in two hours into central London. You know, they, they cross the continent in America. We just, obviously with COVID and very few patients being able to get to their specialised clinics, telemedicine has come entirely into it. In, you know, down to wearables for heart and respiratory. It's a fantastic tool. And I think once you've let that genie out the bottle, there's no way you're going to drive two hours to a hospital when you can do a video call and, you know, you can even send your bloods. You know, it's a no brainer in my, in my opinion. Absolutely. Any thoughts on that, Nick? Yeah, I mean, we need to take the, the gains we've made um, and hopefully there aren't any perverse incentives in the NHS to get people back in the room instead of dealing with them over the phone. Certainly it's, um, broadly speaking, telemedicine has been welcomed by the rare disease community, and it was something that a lot of people have been calling for for a long time. Um, we just need to recognise that it doesn't work for everyone. So there needs to be that bit of flexibility for those that either need that human presence um, or have challenges with technology or accessibility. Um, but with flexibility, we should be embracing as much as possible because there's massive unmet health need in, in rare in rare conditions and, and we need to be leaving no stone unturned to, to meet that. Yeah, I think it's going to be hybrid. It's like working from home or the office now, isn't it? It's the yeah. way it is. Hybrid clinical <laughs> trials, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Why not? Well, thank you so much, Claire. And I think we'll just end up, um, just want to ask you, Nick, are there any initiatives coming up um, with Genetic Alliance UK or Rare Disease UK that you just want to talk about now and then I'll ask the same uh, question to Janet with um, Duchesne Nexus Advocacy. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Um, so for, for Rare Disease Day we're publishing a report on good diagnosis which acknowledges the importance of a, of a rapid um, and accurate diagnosis but brings in other elements of it um, around making sure that people have um, information available um, at the point of diagnosis as we've discussed already, diagnosis can take a long time and therefore we need a diagnosis care plan and care coordination during diagnosis. And then we also want to produce a good diagnosis patient rights charter, which actually sets out what people have a right to expect around their search for a diagnosis and what they should be getting when they, when they get that diagnosis. So um, I'd encourage everyone to look for that report on raredisease.org.uk. Thank you, Nick. And then over to Janet. Well, I think the emphasis for Duchenne Nexus Advocacy on Rare Disease Day and going forward, obviously, is the need to look at holistic care, the need to not just look at your, you know, your medication re regime and what you need, just as equally important as quality of life. You know, do you have the correct wheelchair? Do you have your housing adaptations in place? Do you know how to apply for uh, a motability vehicle? All of those things all contribute to quality of life yeah. and state of mental health, to be honest. Because, you know, I, I deal with families that are on their knees with the grief of their diagnosis, recent or otherwise. They haven't got the strength to fight a local education authority for a tribunal to get their son, and it's invariably sons, into the right education. Don't know how to get the correct wheelchair. You know, and I, I spend my days doing that, helping parents. And I'd just like to say thank you so much to my guests for joining today and for your personal insights uh, and from a policy perspective. As Rare Disease Day approaches, 
we have tried to address different points, points of view from diagnoses, registries and their importance to the evaluation of drugs and access to patients. I hope it was as insightful to you as it was for me and my personal circumstance. Don't forget to light up for rare at 7pm on the 28th of February and share your pictures to social media. Thank you for listening. that's it for this month. For more Plants for Access insight and analysis, please go to our website www.partnersforaccess.com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And don't forget to leave a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening. 